Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and rout them. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from the many waters, from the hand of foreigners, whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. Those are the first eight verses of Psalm 144, which along with Psalm 137 are the psalms appointed for today, Saturday, November the 27th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being with me today. We, we are in the book of Micah, the prophecy of Micah, and then also in chapter 7, verses 11 to 20, we're continuing our look at First Peter, chapter 4, verses 7 to 19, and then in Matthew's gospel, chapter 20, verses 29 to 34, as we get ready for the season of Advent to begin, it seems incredible and impossible to believe that it's already upon us, but yet here we are. Uh, on the precipice of an, another season of Advent, which is a season when we're called to long for the coming of Christ. And we do so by reflecting on the state of the world and the state of our own faith and the state of our own discipleship. And so it's a, it's a new beginning. That's what Advent always is for us. It, it gets us as Christians off the world cycle of celebration. It puts us into a different cycle. It's in some ways similar to how the Jewish calendar has at least actually got a couple of New Year's, neither of which are on January the 1st. One celebrates the beginning of creation. That's in, in the time of Rosh Hashanah, and the other celebrates the beginning of the harvest cycles, and so it, that's Passover. So we get two different New Years, and, and the, the church calendar is designed to get us out of the world system at some level and put us into God's system, and so here we are at this season of time when the world is really celebrating. And what are they celebrating? Well, they're celebrating Christmas. Does that mean they're celebrating the birth of Jesus? No. <laughs> just means it celebrates a time of, of family and togetherness and whatever, whether that's possible or not based on whatever Dr. Fauci says, I guess. But the we're called to a different um, timetable from the world. And so sometimes in seasons of Advent, for instance, which is a season uh, not really of celebration, it's a season of preparation, but it's also a season that when we're called to fast as Christians in the same way we do before Lent, uh, during Lent, I mean, there, it, it was historically been a season of fasting. And so it, we're, we're called to that sort of Preparation time of examination and preparation for the coming of Christ, so that we might celebrate um, Christmas with joy, and the joy reserved only for the idea that the the incredible, scandalous idea that God took on flesh and became like us in the form of a little child, way way back a couple thousand years ago in Bethlehem. So anyway, there's your. Brief preparation for the season of Advent. So in Micah's prophecies, is a day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. In that day, they shall come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea, from mountain to mountain. It, it seems th that it would be like their worst nightmare. 
right? I mean, you, coming from Assyria, from the cities of Egypt, from the cities of Egypt to the river, sea to sea and mountain to mountains. It sounds like they're being surrounded and, and not for a good thing, but that's not what Micah's saying at all. He said, but the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. And so this is after the judgment. And so what you get is, is these people who, who survived the judgment of God now coming to Jerusalem. And since the boundaries will be extended, well, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the size of the heavenly Jerusalem, and and that's what is in sight here. This The view that Micah has is, is, is that, that once that judgment is complete, then everyone flocks to Jerusalem. He says, shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest, in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. In other words, gather your people together because now they're scattered. The flock is scattered and they dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. And then he says, let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations will see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. So God's going to show up and show out. And, and the people all over the world will, will look and see there's only one true God. Just as he proved in bringing his people out of Egypt, so will it be in the end. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You shall show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And so what Micah sees and what so often contemporary Christians tend to not believe. And if they do believe it, they tend not to think about it much and tend not to dwell on it at all, is that that there are two sides to God. And one of those is justice. And we should be thankful for justice, even though it implies also there will be judgment. But the other side of that, and the, the overriding thing, is compassion. Love, mercy, grace, all those kinds of things. But, but justice is real, and it's necessary. We all hope for justice, no matter what we look like or what we do. We hope for justice. We believe in justice. We just overlook our own part in establishing justice, but also we look our, overlook our own guilt in being part of the problem. And so when we fail to take responsibility or to even acknowledge that our sin contributes to the way the world is today, and it might be better if everybody were like me, it, it just would be you know, still sinful and broken in a different way. And so we can look at that and we can, we can want justice whenever we've been wronged, but part of justice in the earth is us doing justice and us abstaining from sin. Those are important things because there's judgment on sin, but we need to judge it first in our own lives before it gets judged by the world, much less being judged by God. But those two sides of God's uh, character are both important, and, and they were, there, there's no clearer exposition of that. 
Then in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, when the Lord himself tells who he is and what his character is, the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So what does it mean to, to forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, but, but by no means clear the guilty? It's the guilty are those who have refused to confess, those who have refused to repent, those who have failed to offer the proper sacrifices in this context. Now, th- there's only one sacrifice for sin, and that's Jesus. That's the sacrifice that he made on the cross. That's once and for all. And so when we come to him, we do so. We, we represent the sacrifice and the crucifixion as our appeal. That, that's the sacrifice we bring as a, a humble and contrite heart. But the sacrifice we bring is the sacrifice that Jesus made 2,000 years ago. And so when we make our prayer and our confession, then we're representing the cross of Christ. Because he is our hope. He is our forgiveness. That's the way we go from guilty to innocent, is we put the sin on him on the cross. And he says, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now later, that gets amended in the prophetic word to... to the, own, the father's father is eat sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. God says, no, I'm doing away with that. Everybody's going to give an accounting of their own. I'm not going to punish down through the generations. But the problem becomes you get a generational sin because you get unrepented of sin within the generations. So you get one king who does this, and then the people continue to follow, and then later... They come and they confess not only their sins, but their father's sins as well. And it's because they've continued to commit those same sins themselves. They become a generational thing because they become a pattern for life. And so I think maybe this would be a good time to look at our lives during this season of Advent and say, what are those generational things, those things that I've accepted because I'm an American, because I'm a whatever, and, and maybe take a look at those and say, you know, I think that's actually sin. And I think we need to deal with that. And I think in America today, we do need to deal with that. We need to to be open and honest. We need to fast and come before the Lord with prayer and fasting and ask him to show us what we need to do. In the gospel lesson, they're going out of Jericho. So they're going to Jerusalem uh, from Capernaum to Jericho. And a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. When they had heard that Jesus was passing by, They cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes and immediately recovered their sight and followed him. It's they they were sort of persona non grata as well. I mean, they could beg. They had the ability to beg. But the assumption was there was something wrong with these guys probably sin. Um, it sort of, you could see that in John 9 when they come upon the blind man, man born blind, and the disciples asked, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born this way? And Jesus says, neither of those is true. That's not how it works. There's no one-to-one correspondence here. If there were, I mean, the whole world would be walking around, you know, naked, blind, um, no hands, no eyes, no ears, <laughs> lobotomized. 
because of the the indwelling of sin, the, the pervasiveness of sin. We just tend to see the the outward expressions and the the more um, you know sort of scandalous things. But but Jesus sets all that right and says, no no no, that's not how it works. There's a, the, the sin is in the world, and because of that, these things happen. But I'm here to reverse that. And so he, he healed the blind man there and he heals these blind men here. These who are crying out to him, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. I mean, they're recognizing him. They're not saying, Rabbi, have mercy on us. No, they're saying, son of David. They're proclaiming him to be the Messiah when he comes. And, and they've heard about him and they, they know and they believe that he's able to do something about their situation. But when, when Jesus comes to them or when they come to him, they're told, uh, he asks, what do you want me to do for you? I mean, I'm sorry, can you not see we're blind men? But the reality is, is that it, they could have just been begging. They could have wanted more from him, just financially, could have just wanted some sort of alms for these guys, and they would have been entitled to it. So Jesus has to ask them specifically, what does he want me to do for you? And I think too often what we do is we bring our pain to him, but we, we don't want to give it away. We don't want to get rid of it, because at some level it's working for us. Even though it looks horrible, we like dragging our pain around because we get other people to come to our side. We get other people to sympathize with us or whatever. Here, that's not really happening because these guys start crying out, Lord, have mercy on a son of David. And people look around and they shut up. You know, so, so the, these guys are looking for healing. And because they were persistent in asking for that healing and they recognized him for who he was, their faith was rewarded. Because they believed he could do it, and they believed that they made profession of faith, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And then they persisted in that prayer when other people told them to shut up about it. And then because of their persistence, their faith in who Jesus was and what he could do was rewarded with the giving back of their sight to them. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus doing this thing only he could do. And these two men of great faith who are now going to follow Jesus on the way, and they're going to see something they wish they had never seen. They're going to wish that, in fact, probably that they had never received back their sight if they see Jesus on the cross. But that's not the end of the story. In the First Peter passage, he says, the end of all things is at hand. And they did. They lived in a time when they believed that the coming of the Lord was imminent. Not in a million years would they have imagined that a couple thousand years later we would be waiting as well. So they believed that everything was coming to an end in very short order. And that was based on some of the things that Jesus had said that would have certainly led you to believe that he was coming back soon and very soon in earth time. And that's the problem is is that we have that that, that sense of time that we, we get because of the the confines of the earth and the confines of life under the sun because that's that the sun and the moon are going to dominate and decide for us what time looks like so when peter says the thin end of all things is at hand he's right <laughs> but it's just not as imminent as he thought but th- that doesn't mean that what he's going to say next doesn't have power and force and effect then or now because it does it does. Because what he's going to do is say, this is the way you should live because the end of all things is at hand. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. In other words, if you are self-controlled and sober-minded, then, then the sake of your prayers would indicate that then you'll know how to pray properly. If you keep your head and keep your wits about you in every way, then your prayers will be more efficacious. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. 
show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality was was one of the chief virtues in, in the Middle East, particularly in Judaism. Uh, it was an important thing. And then this show hospitality to one another without grumbling, that, that's the big issue that they say happens in Sodom, that when the angels come, that, that there's hospitality that Lot shows those angels that that is the only person there who's doing it. And one of the Jewish beliefs in, in some of the uh, Madrash is, is that the um, Lot's wife, you remember, is turned into a pillar of salt. Well, here's the reason they believe she was turned into a pillar of salt. She was a, she was a person of Sodom. That's where she was from. And so what, they, what they've come up with is the belief that when, she, when they come, she grumbles. And she doesn't just grumble to Lot. No, what what they believe, what they'll teach is, is that that she they needed salt. She didn't have enough salt in the house to provide this meal that Lot wanted her to provide for their guests. And she's juxtaposed with Sarah in in the same chapter of Genesis, and with Moses in the same chapter, who <coughs> Abraham, sorry, um, <laughs> who who provides lavishly for these same people. And then Lot wants her to do the same, and the, so the story goes that she was so she grumbled about it so much that she went from house to house, complaining, asking for them to give her some salt so that she could provide hospitality for these people because they were the anti-hospitality people, the people of Sodom were, and so that she grumbled about that, and that's the reason they say that she was turned particularly into a pillar of salt. So she grumbled about providing to hospitality. And then he keeps on with, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. In other words, we all have different gifts. And those things are to be put into service of the Lord. And the way that we put it into the service of the Lord is to serve one another with those gifts. Serve as one, whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Before, I'm sorry, before that, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So be careful not to do it in your own power and for your own needs. He said, in order that God may be glorified in everything through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Which is a direct quote from Revelation 5 and Revelation 4, the the worship of heaven directed to the throne and then ultimately also to the one looking like a lamb looking like it was slain. And then he keeps on with, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Be prepared for this. Just recognize that that because Jesus was persecuted, so will his followers. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So, in other words, if you, if you can rejoice in the suffering, in the fellowship of his sufferings, and the fellowship of his sufferings means you're going to be suffering with him, but he'll be suffering with you. He says, rejoice insofar as you share his suffering so that you may rejoice when his glory is revealed. And that is to continue to align yourself with him. Don't deny him before men, or he'll deny you before the Father. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory in God rests upon you. So in other words, if people recognize the spirit of glory and of God resting on you, then you will be insulted. And Jesus has already said, blessed are you when you're reviled and persecuted for my name's sake. And so Peter's just repeating that passage from the the, um, Sermon on the Mount. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. In other words, don't suffer for doing the wrong things. That's not really suffering properly because you brought that upon yourself. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name.
and that's an important thing for us to remember always, is, is that if we're suffering as a Christian, then we're not going to be ashamed of that. We're not going to—we're we're going to accept it because of what we know about Jesus. <clears throat> for it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And I can't give any better advice than that. Do the right thing always and be prepared to suffer for that. And if you do, rejoice.